If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. We said, what would it look like if the people that we know in Mexico and Nicaragua and Rwanda had their own 3D printer? Like, what if they could just make their own stuff? And what would it look like if they could just use plastic waste? Samantha Snaves is reimagining 3D printing to make a difference in communities. Samantha is the co-founder and catalyst of Houston-based Re3D, a social enterprise which has created the world's largest affordable industrial 3D printer. Called the Gigabot, this printer starts at printing items 8 cubic feet in size. Among the items the Gigabot has created, 3D printed signs and other much needed items for Puerto Rico following Hurricane Maria. In addition, for every 100 Gigabot printers they sell, Re3D donates one to a community. Samantha and her team have won a number of honors. Those include first place in the Techstars Pitch Competition held in the Eureka Park startup area during CES 2019 in Las Vegas for their brand new printer, the Gigabot X, which 3D prints from recycled trash. Samantha, you describe yourself as a challenge seeker committed to exploring the intersections of space and society. How did those intersections first capture your imagination? Oh, gosh. So I've wanted to be an astronaut since as long as I can remember. It's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. And it was one of the first things that I spoke about as a young child. And consequently, I went to every camp, seminar, and clinic that I could to learn more about space. And, well, for some reason, I was innately drawn to it as I learned more about what space exploration entailed and NASA and commercial space. I really gravitated to all the ways that exploring space not only fosters, you know, natural curiosity and diplomacy, but builds connections between people and scientifically has the opportunity to further life on Earth. So those were topics that I really gravitated towards, no pun intended, and became a life scientist in the process, and which led me to working for NASA eventually as a contractor and meeting Matthew and like-minded people, and then starting Re3D. With that commitment to furthering life on Earth and having met Matthew, please tell me the story of how Re3D came from there. Sure. So we were initially, both Matthew and I worked for a directorate called Space Life Sciences at NASA Johnson Space Center. Professionally, during the day, we were with the same contractor. We both had independently also joined Engineers Without Borders NASA Johnson Space Center, which is a group of civil servants and contractors and astronauts, engineers, scientists, and MBAs who have a passion for taking what they've seen living and working in space and translating it to more austere environments. And so we were working together professionally and had professional peers who were very like-minded and then also volunteering for the same nonprofit. I would say that, you know, there were a lot of conversations that naturally came out of those experiences with this cohort and then in when I turned 30, in 2011, I think it was, I left the country for the first time outside of just going to Canada previously and traveled with a group for an implementation trip with Matthew to Rwanda for, for uh, I think it was like three weeks. And I was really appalled because we would see like 
pounds and pounds of medical equipment just sitting out in the sun that was discarded at the hospital near the orphanage I was at. And at the orphanage, there was unused equipment and wells. And we asked them, you know, why this was. And they'd say, well, it's, you know, it's a poor cultural fit or it can't be maintained or it's the wrong voltage. Like, the list went on and on. And we had moved mountains just to get our own equipment into the country. And we thought, well, this is crazy because when we were in Rwanda, we noticed four things. There was a lot of plastic waste. There was higher unemployment. There's a huge frustration on the dependence of imported goods and leveraging services from organizations like ourselves. And more importantly, the people we met were super independent. And I I should caveat that and say, at the time, I had an MBA, and to just be smarter with my MBA, I joined. I was on the board for Young Professionals Board for an organization called Opportunity International that did microfinance lending. And I had started to work myself into this weird position at NASA where, professionally, where I'd become the social entrepreneur in residence for NASA headquarters, and I was about to... And so I had access to a lot of aid organizations. And what I learned, like, through this experience, through Engineers Without Borders, NASA Johnson Space Center, first in Rwanda, and then later I saw, again, with our Mexico team and a couple of trips I took myself to Nicaragua, was that, you know, these four things were really common. And so Matthew, in parallel, as you know, I'm thinking about, you know, what it means to do good and do well and having access to independence for problem solving. Matthew had really gotten engaged with the maker movement as a hobbyist and had one of the very first open source 3D printers, a printer bot that Brooke Drummond made back to Kickstarter. And he was telling us, he was like, guys, this is the future. And, you know, he hailed from a farm in Iowa and I'm from Detroit. And it didn't take long before, you know, a lot of these multiple dialogues convened. And we said, man, you know, what would it look like if People, the people that we know in Mexico and Nicaragua and Rwanda, where those are the three countries we're most focused on initially, in these rural environments, what would it look like if they just had their own 3D printer? Like, what if they could just make their own stuff? And then, you know, along the way it said, you know, and, and what would it look like if they could just use plastic waste? Because we've seen it, you know. So they have their own input material, too. And so I kind of shared this in my professional capacity, I was sharing it with the peers I was meeting through being a social entrepreneur in residence for NASA. And what I learned is like the threshold for purchasing was around 10K. And then a lot of the groups that we surveyed said, hey, you know, that's, that's a great idea, guys. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it really has to be open source. It has to be a technology that people can maintain themselves. And also, and more importantly, when people make things, they're not going to make a iPhone case or a Yoda head. They're going to make something they can use. And that's going to be bigger than these desktop printers. And so we started to ask them, like, what they would print. And one of the use cases that I, I just really liked, that was funny, but also I'm really intrigued by it, was a composting toilet. So I decided to measure a couple composting toilets. I did some benchmarking, and the, and the footprint was two-bit cubed. So I said, all right, let's make a, a toilet-sized 3D printer under 10K. And, you know, we started to have... At some point, it was like part of Engineers Without Borders, and then it kind of became what we called Engineers Without Borders Black Ops, or Special Ops. And then it kind of became its own thing where people were getting together regularly over beer to talk about this. And then at some point, we start, I start keeping minutes, and, and we started applying to a couple like contests online I'd known about for my job at Open NASA. And, and then eventually, we applied. We first applied to this thing called Jack Daniels. Randomly, they had partnered with Instructables for what they called your Independence Day project. 
to suggest how for 25K you would, like, help people create independence. So it seemed to be a good fit. And we became a finalist. And it was in that experience in the fall of 2012 that people started emailing me and saying, hey, you know, this really needs to happen. Like, this is a great idea. And then we loosely met two other people kind of thinking about the same thing globally, who now are actually really good friends of ours and one's a customer in Aruba and Kenya. And and so we took that application and we heard about this thing called Startup Chile. I didn't think much about it. And I did a video. I was a volunteer firefighter at the time. That What you don't see in the videos, I'm like, where are my firefighter bottoms? They just run a long shift all night in this tank top. And I shoot the application video for Startup Chile and repurpose this Jack Daniels thing. And then we get a letter from the president of Chile and in December 2012 that says, pack your bags in one month. We will give you 40000 equity free to start this stupid idea in your head in Santiago, Chile. So I filed my taxes and quit my job. I should back up and say we got together on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, 2012-2013. And, and Matthew made this really terrible PowerPoint. And he said, hey, guys, I don't think we can print from garbage and make a big 3D printer all at one time. But, but what we can do is make a big 3D printer first. I'm confident I can do it in six weeks based off of an open source platform. And then we'll work on this printing from trash thing longer term. And and so we all voted and ponied up the initial cash, and I moved with the backpack, and the rest is history. What were those first days like for you in Chile? Giving up your job, moving with a backpack, that's a pretty brave leap. Yeah, it was, you know, it always helps when you're naive. And what's funny is I, I guess it's been a year, a year and a half, maybe less than that, since I'd ever left the country. So it's, it's, somehow I, like, went to Rwanda and then became the social entrepreneur in residence for Open.NASA and spent a month in Nicaragua and time here and there and and then moved for seven months to Santiago. Uh, so it all happened very fast. And at the time, it seemed very normal and logical. Looking back on it, it's a little bit weird. But yeah, I, Matthew had that very first... I left it there. I kind of wish we had it now. We donated it, but he gave me his little open source printer bot because I didn't even have a 3D printer. In fact, I didn't even know how to 3D print at the time really well. I just like put in a couple of files and given them to him at his house. And so he gives me this little printer because he's like, you have to explain to people what it is you're talking about. And but I had been in my backpack and I had to go through customs or his backpack. I think I borrowed it. And I had like two suitcases and I showed up and one of the people that was originally in our founding team thought she had housing and then it didn't work out because it turns out the week I show up, it's like month of holidays I have in Chile. <laughs> Everything's closed. And it's summer and so I'm a dingling and realize I passed like the completely wrong seasons worth of clothes. <laughs> I have like winter clothes on, it's super hot. I'm walking everywhere, you know, we don't have a car. I have no idea where I'm gonna live. So I find a hostel for a couple nights and then I couch surf with some people that were in our program. I did that for a few weeks before I found our apartment and then you know the pressure was really on Matthew. So he was back in Houston, Texas. So he was actually in a PhD program at the time and working for NASA still or as a contractor and he was basically working on this printer on nights and weekends and then dropped down to part time and we'd worked out this drug deal with Kickstarter well actually first to start up Chile so I show up it's like come to find out it's like the first time they ever took someone with just an idea in their head but they'd really wanted a team for NASA it was a great story everyone knew it and so I tell them I'm like we're going to make the world's largest affordable industrial 3D printer by March, and I had heard that they had a booth at South by Southwest. And so my big play, and this is probably one of the better decisions I ever made with 3.3D, is I said, if we make this and we get you a prototype during this program, can my co-founder drive it from Houston to Austin to unveil this at your booth at South by Southwest for free because it's expensive, you know? 
and then he'll fly down here and bring it to Chile. And they're like, yeah, right, it'll never happen, sure. But Matthew, you know, just barely, like, he was tightening it up at the booth, but we made it happen. And and what's crazy is I then worked out a deal with Kickstarter and Amazon Payments at the time that was partnered with them, and I said, if we can time this right when the door is open at South by Southwest and my co-founder makes this thing that's not invented and presents it there, I want to launch it on Kickstarter. And the process is a little bit longer at the time, but we worked that all out. And the only feedback Kickstarter has is we clued together this horrible video you can see online as Matthew's building this thing. And we don't even have a name for it. <laughs> it was that young. And Kickstarter's like emailing me like, you guys really have to figure out what you're going to call this thing. <laughs> and we're like fighting about it until the 11th hour and then slip in a title and an editor for TechCrunch walked by when the doors opened. I was down in Chile when I pushed go on Kickstarter and waited online to start to answer all the customer support tickets that came in. And and the editor of TechCrunch says, 3D printing has now gotten bigger than a bread box. And we were funded in 27 hours and raised a quarter of a million. So it was a whirlwind because basically during Startup Chile, you know, we showed up with just an idea in our head. It's just me. I'm hot and sweaty. I have the wrong clothes, nowhere to live. And then fast forward just, you know, a couple months later, I'm still in Chile, and we've sold we've sold this over, like, I think at that point, it got us into, like, 20-something countries, and we realized, like, we're going to need customer support to service all this, and Matthew's like, I can't build these through my living room, guys, and suddenly we need space, and we have we two advisors we knew from NASA who were in Silicon Valley, who are just awesome, Tom Chi and Pascal Panet, and they're like, hey, people are dumb enough to give you their money, like, start taking pre-orders, so... By the end of Startup Chile, you know, we basically found a way to bootstrap and leverage our money to have to build out a factory in, in Texas around initially Matthew's garage and now where we are across the street from NASA. And Gigabot, of course, is the printer. We should mention that you asked for, I believe, $40,000 on Kickstarter and got, as you said, a quarter of a million, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And fast forward to today, you have got the Gigabot X, which prints with plastic waste. Wow. Now, you said on one of your pitches that printing with garbage is ridiculously difficult. <laughs> Why do you say that? Yeah, so, you know, when they convinced everyone to quit their jobs and <laughs> start re 3 d you know, we're like, we're, like, we're going to make a toilet-sized 3D printer that's powered by garbage. And then Matthew very quickly, like, once we got that first 40K, is like, we can do one of these two things. <laughs> um, and thankfully, through that first Kickstarter campaign and the support since then, you know, we've been able to sustain that and iterate it to a point where it's, it's a pretty high-quality printer with, you know, lifetime customer support and six-month warranties and all the bells and whistles you'd want from, like, a precision tool company. But I think we spent about two and a half years figuring out how to run a factory. And then with the level of – so the people that backed our printer, I should back up, you know, they – weren't just NGOs and they weren't makers. Like, these are real companies. These are hospitals. These are veterinarians. These are educators. These are individuals. We call them problem solvers worldwide with real needs. And this thing has to work. And a lot of printers, you know, didn't work so well at the time. So that took a tremendous amount of overhead and resources. Now, mind you, you know, we used to have a policy. You had to work six months for free without getting a paycheck. And then you were only going to make, like, a very not competitive salary with no health care. So the people, you know, for the first two years, like, really put in with their families. They put in everything. And when you're working, you know, we say the the average for salary, you know, it's 40 to 60 hours per week. You know, that doesn't leave a lot of time for a second job and or to do extra research. So what we did is we did two other Kickstarter campaigns. And then we started pitching 
because we realized that printing from trash was like really hard, like figure out, you know, how to work with mixed materials. And, and over time, we, you know, originally we were targeting like recycled like filament, like our regular gigabyte, you know, the rope-like material that feeds it. And then what we heard from our customers was, you know, that getting that feedback in was really expensive and a lot of overhead and it would dry out and, you know, all this list of reasons why we had to figure out how to print from trash directly. And, and the closest thing to that is what's called a pellet printer. And it's, you know, it's a hundred thousand dollars or more. And the screws that they use are just really big and they're heavy and there's a lot of engineering around them. And just all the requirements our customers gave us is literally from something that's never been done. And so we realized printing from trash is going to be difficult and it's going to take more resources. We didn't have the hours on our team. We didn't have the money to contract it. So we had to go out and, you know, apply for grants and to pitch and to share a story. And and then we did these two other Kickstarter campaigns because we realized we had no money ever for R&D to, like, fund research and development. And that took, you know, another two and a half to three years. We're applying for some other grants right now. And and then finally, like, through just sheer generosity and, and fortune, we won the $1 million WeWork Creator Award in Madison Square Gardens a year ago. And the same week, which kind of overshadows it, and it's too bad, is NSFSCIR Phase 1, titled Maker to Manufacturing 3D Printing from Recycled Materials. And so instantly, we finally have the resources to, to not only make a prototype, but make something, you know, that, that we could share with the community. But, you know, it, it was it was five years in to get to that point. And what we have now is, I would say it's beyond a prototype and it's a beta. There's three of them that's been built. We're in the process of selling a very small Kickstarter campaign we did last year to, to tease out who wanted this initial technology and what materials we should work with. And then, yeah, this year we're planning to make it a commercial reality. But it's pretty from trash is hard. And then on top of that, so we figure out, you know, how to work with these different materials, how to print directly from shredded plastic as a first pass and and all the requirements around this new way of printing. And then the whole time I just assumed, like, we knew that you need a way to grind the garbage, right? And you need a way to feed it. You need a way to keep it dry. Those are three things we kind of learned early on. And we just assumed, like, those technologies exist. Like, we'll eventually just buy those technologies when we get the hard part done. Well, it turns out there's not, like, a compatible size and cost grinder on the market. They're, like, really big, and they're really expensive, and, and they don't work. So, ironically, after all of this effort, now we have to, like, get into the grinding business. And so we've applied for NSF SCR Phase 2 to fund the development of that and associated hardware so it's, you know, seamless. But, yeah, there's just all these things at every corner we're like, huh. I didn't really think that one through. <laughs> a journey where nobody has gone before has to have its challenges. What if somebody listening right now is a maker and is saying, wow, this is so cool, I want to support them. How can they do that? Yeah, so they can go to, there's a few ways. One, we're hiring a lot of roles so that we have some resources to grow our team and to, you know, really prioritize this. You know, I say 3D printing is still in the wild, wild west, but we've come a long way and have a long way to go and we know we need help. So you can apply for a job at 3.3d.org forward slash careers, or you can just sign up for a newsletter. It's at the bottom of our homepage or any of our social media channels. We're at 3.3d printing across all of them, and and that's where we try to, you know, share our needs and to get feedback. We would love it. We've been kind of slow to really develop a forum, but we want to do that so that, you know, makers in particular can have a place to have, like, good conversation about what we've done and what we need to do better. So please help us build our forum out. 
sign up for our newsletter, apply for a job, or tell your friends if you know someone that would really like to contribute. And, you know, if, if you're interested in purchasing one of these units, you know, we're happy to have you join our community that way. And you can email sales at reachyd.org. We are taking $1,000 deposits right now for the printer that prints from trash. But in our standard version of Gigabyte, you know, we sell that to over 55 countries, I think, now worldwide. And, yeah, just at the end of the day, you know, we are less sales-driven. We more care about, you know, solving a problem and, and helping people just think big and print huge. <laughs> and I wish you'd tell me a little bit about how you applied that to Puerto Rico post-Hurricane Maria. Yeah, so it's funny how things come full circle. We say that a lot lately, no pun intended. So when I came down to start up Chile with, you know, just this idea in our head in 2013, the, I think he was a deputy director and he became the executive director towards the end. Sebastian Vidal was on the staff and so we kind of seen like, you know, a follow through and at least taking the big 3D printer. And at the time, it was one of the largest Kickstarter campaigns that ever come out of Chile too and had a lot of visibility. So fast forward, you know, we stay in touch and every year startup Chile would come to South by Southwest. So we, you know, connect. And then I think I sat on a panel with him to talk about our experience with startup Chile. And, and a year ago, and then two years ago, excuse me. And he asked me to, I had been a judge for this program. He'd actually gotten pulled out of startup Chile and put into a new program called parallel 18, which also gives you $40,000 equity free. We highly recommend it in Puerto Rico. And Sebo says, okay, I know Chile was like a little far away to try and manage two operations, but I'm leading this program called Parallel 18. You should, you know, you should also look at applying because when we'd won some of these pitch competitions, he's like, you guys have the money. You're going to make this happen. He's like, when it happens, this technology needs to be demonstrated on the island. So throughout the course of Re3D, we'd often gotten emails. We give away one printer for every 100 we delivered. It's someone trying to make a difference in their community. And it's not uncommon for islands to respond. And, and they would talk about, like, hey, I know someday you want to print from trash. And when you do, that needs to happen on the island. Most of the islands don't have recycling centers. There's, you know, the same issues, high unemployment, plastic waste, yada, yada, yada. And they're importing. Like, for example, in Puerto Rico, 85% of their goods are imported. And then there's not enough jobs. Like, in, and what they find, in particularly in Puerto Rico, is, like, they have this great engineering community of students. And they want to stay. So Sabo's like, hey, when you guys make this happen and he needs to come to Puerto Rico, he's like, you should consider applying. So we did apply, and we got in to Parallel 18. And what we didn't know is we got in one month before the hurricane. So we're like, great, come to Puerto Rico with the same thing we did in Chile. We're like, hey, guys, it's just an idea in our heads, but we've got the money. Our engineers are working on it. During Parallel 18, we are going to make a printer that can print from garbage. Um, and it's going to happen. We're going to bring it back to Puerto Rico. And then the hurricanes happened. And what sometimes isn't told is Hurricane Harvey hit our factory and our team in Houston first. So we were actually hit by three hurricanes, not just the two. And then less than a month later, we were hit by Hurricanes Irma, and then two weeks later to the day, Hurricane Maria. And so, you know, our whole company was just devastated and reeling. And, you know, we the program went on pause, and we actually had the opportunity to leave Puerto Rico if we wanted to, and some people did. And and our team in Houston, it was, like, still underwater, and some people became homeless, said, you know, we can't leave the community that did the exact same thing we did a month beforehand. That's crazy, you know. So kudos to our staff and, like, you know, despite their own adversity, just really sticking to the mission. And, you know, even through all of that that year, they still made a printer that could print from plastic waste. And 
because of this whole grinder dilemma, <laughs> we are working on the printer still from Houston. We're doing contract prints, actually using water, the same material that's in recycled water bottles to do prints that we're bringing to Puerto Rico while we build out this integrated system. And then we developed a partnership with the Puerto Rican Science and Research Trust. So this year, that technology will be going to Puerto Rico, and we're talking to some manufacturers to make this happen on the island. So what we did in that period in both Houston and Puerto Rico is we said, hey, anyone who you know, is local that has a design and has a need can use our printers to try and help your community. And so we ended up getting in some really interesting disaster response projects in, in both Texas and mainly Puerto Rico as a result of that. What are some of the absolute coolest things you've seen people make that are going to make a difference so far with your Gigabot? I think everyone on the team will give you a different answer, but, you know, one of the early prints that I did that mattered to me because I saw the community was I had a chance to collaborate on this <laughs> urinal. It was for a, a renewable bathroom installation. And they didn't have another way of prototyping the right way to make sure that the the pee was diverted and didn't roll out, like for kids and adults of different heights that were sharing a bathroom. But, you know, actually, you know, having made a toilet duty printer and then actually printing something that was being used as a sanitation solution and getting to visit the slum and the community to, to get feedback on it was, I think, really eye-opening for me and, and seeing how they responded to it. But I think now, like, you know, what's interesting, again, is we had these very specific use cases in mind, and we've been humbled to find that, you know, People in Austin, Texas are doing amazing things to benefit their community or, or to, to really address big problems with their printer. And then, you know, I think every day we're, like, surprised by all the things our customers are doing. But one application that really struck me over the last, I think it was, like, two years ago now, is there was a researcher at Texas A&M University in the vet teaching hospital, and there was this dog that had, you know, this basically kind of, like, form of cancer on its skin and it couldn't. Be, it wasn't treatable, and the vet figured out because there weren't any other options how he could take a scan of this dog, model the dog's body, and then use the density of the 3D printer. He could vary it to then use that as a way to optimize the radiation therapy for the dog, and the dog ended up living and had a 100% outcome. And so now we're thinking of like 3D prints, like not only as like you know a fixture, a jig, all the things you commonly think of, or you know, a non-sexy component under manufacturing floor, but now we're talking about, like, 3D prints treating cancer. And there's several hospitals that have our technology, so I think healthcare is one thing that's near and dear to us. There are several toilet manufacturers that have a gigamont now, so that's always exciting, but... <laughs> but I think the use cases we see in, like, in these new domains are really cool. You know, we had a conversation with a gentleman this morning who was, you know, printing a 14-foot drone. So, you know, thinking about things that fly, thinking about things that have application and just really stretch, like, what you think is possible using plastic feedstocks is really exciting. And, and then, you know, going beyond that, I think prints I'm most excited about right now are these early use cases that we're soliciting from the community or anyone listening to the show around 3D printing, particularly from water bottles. So one thing that we had a chance to work on was, like, prototyping a better basket for coffee picking and 3D printing in Puerto Rico. It sounds silly, but the way a number of people do coffee picking is they weave together baskets that can stretch over time or can't be sanitized or they use buckets and those aren't well formed to the body so they can cause like abrasions on your body and you have the potential of filling up the basket or the bucket too much and then bruising the bean. And so we were able to like work on a 
a solution to take recycled PET and to use this new printer to make better coffee picking baskets. And the same pictures of, you know, the farmers using them is, is pretty cool and getting to know the community. Again, I think I kind of gravitate toward these two that like really unusual applications of our technology, but but I think the use cases are really inspiring. I think so too. How long does it take if you're going to print a 14-foot drone or you're going to print a coffee picking basket? What kind of a time commitment do we have? So it really depends on whether the print is hollow or solid, whether it's you know big or small or you're using our traditional style of 3D printing, but if you, we call it fused filament fabrication or fused deposition modeling, it's the rope-like material that it gets pushed through. That goes a little bit slower. With pellet printing, we actually can make it go 13 times faster. So you're just you know, putting in either pellets or shredded plastic, and that can be heated and extruded a lot quicker. So it depends on the type of printer now that you're using, but we can print, in the case of something that's maybe you know two foot tall, now we can do that and you know, eight hours or less, and before that might take a couple days. Wow. Yeah. When you say that you donate one out of 100 gigabots that you sell, how do you choose your recipients? So we have a program called the Giga Prize. We're probably due to have one soon. If you sign up for our newsletter, you'll be first to hear about it there. So we push it on our newsletter, we push it across social media. Usually we give people like two weeks to one month of a notice. And then we ask them to put together like a really short video. We try and keep it as simple as possible around, you know, what they would use their printer for and why. And then because we would give a printer to everybody, we then bring on judges that rate them. They look at the number of votes they get and the feedback from the community. And then they look at like their ability to execute the idea of the community that they have advocating for them and the idea itself. And then we we pay for shipping and pay for the kit. Yeah, send them a $10,000 3D printer plus shipping wherever in the world. And then we support them for life. And there's another exciting aspect to what Samantha and her Re3D team are doing as they look towards the future. 3D printing is it's gender agnostic. People ask, you know, what have you made? Not like, are you a boy or a girl? <laughs> People don't really care. And, you know, so as young ladies in particular think about, like, opportunities, I would say, you know, emerging technologies such as city printing is a really great place to jump in and, and not feel like you have any of those barriers. And I think a lot of recruiting success, and, and maybe this has happened kind of naturally with the diversity of our team, but, you know, we have a really diverse team, and, and I really value that, and we are a co-led. And I went to CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, a couple of weeks ago, and I realized a lot of the companies that are still left in 3D printing that have survived what some people have called the nuclear winter, almost all of them are co-led as well. So I think there's something to be said for, you know, partnering with a group of like-minded peers and friends and having a conversation outside of gender and, and just, you know, making sure you have a lot of divergent perspectives in the beginning. So if anyone's looking at starting a company, I would, you know, definitely say like, if you have that type of dialogue within your peer group, it can be really healthy, and I think that that's been a big part of our success. What if a young woman is listening right now and say, yeah, I want to do what she does? What would you tell her about resources that are out there right now? Say she's starting from ground zero. Where does she go? Well, if she wants to be in 3D printing, I would say send me a link to your portfolio because we're hiring. <laughs> I would say, you know, like, I think there is value in having a co-life team. Like, don't feel like you have to do it alone. And if you have a male counterpart, like, go for it. And then I think there's so many great 
books out there. I probably should have read more of them, but than advice. But I'd say, you know, a lot of startups, what they call success is really just, it's just hard work and long hours. And at some point you just have to take the leap. I like when I come up with ideas to like share it with everyone I know because then it's like, if I say it, it's kind of like I'm doing it. And then you just have to go for it and trust your instincts. I would say more than anything, like there's a couple decisions that I made during Race 3D that I'm really thankful for. Like, you know, Resting this technology and launching a prototype, you know, from South by Southwest on Kickstarter in 2013, and then, and just really fighting for, fighting on stage, you know, in all these little competitions to try and get resources to 3D print from garbage. Because then it was super hard and super hard to raise money for something like that. It didn't make sense, but it's something I believed in, and my peers believed in, and our community believed in, and our team believed in, and I drew inspiration from that. So I would say, you know, if if a young lady has an idea, and I think the resources are out there, the money is out there. You just you really have to be willing to work hard and like make it like 110 percent of what you're doing. What about five years from now? What do you see in the future? If everything goes just like you want it to with Gigabot, what are you going to be doing, improving, and innovating? So we think a few things. I think this conversation around 3D printing from trash or 3D printing from pellets will be really common. And I don't think there'll be one in every home, but I do think it's possible that, like, every school might have one or every library. And there'll be, like, little communities of excellences that are starting to arise, whether it's automotive or automation or healthcare and and education. I also think people will start to go a step further and really rethinking what it means to have a sustainable economy so and a circular economy, more importantly. So... There's a possibility that, you know, in a large coffee shop or community space, you could deposit the lid from your coffee cup as you left, and that could get shredded up, and it would sit in a bin. And when the bin gets so full, the community can choose between, like, one of five files, if you will, that will be a park bench for a park a block away or a school within a one-mile radius that needs certain supplies or furniture. I think that will start to become more common, and so there will be this paradigm shift in thinking about like, what does it mean to do on-site manufacturing and and to have sustainable communities? And then, you know, we talk a lot about post-consumer waste and water bottles because there's a lot of them after the hurricanes in Puerto Rico. But the real culprit in all of this is manufacturers. These big brands and, and things that are made are disposing of metric tons of plastic every second, you know, every minute, whether it's in Puerto Rico or North America or the rest of the world. And, you know, they either get fined or they burn it or they pay for this plastic trim or excess virgin material to get disposed of. And there's an opportunity there either to give it to someone that can leverage it to make something else or to use it themselves internally. So I think factories will start to rethink how they become more sustainable in their manufacturing processes. Samantha, if people could only get one thing from you and your social entrepreneurship about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you really want them to take away? I think at our heart, we're all makers, and we're all curious, and we're all explorers. And so I would just say, you know, this is Re3D and Manufacturing Gigabyte is, you know, how we as a group of NASA nerds and community members chose to define, you know, what that looks like. But, you know, I think everyone has an opportunity to create and and see a maker and please email us with what you do because we'd love to follow your adventures as well. That's how we garner inspiration. Samantha, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
You and I have been listening to Samantha Snaves, co-founder and catalyst of Read3D. For more information, go to read3d.org. That's read3d.org. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X, twomavericks.com. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.